Well, we're continuing our study through worship. We talked last week or a couple weeks ago why we worship. We talked about what is worship and that we worship in spirit and in truth. Now, today we're going to look at what does worship look like on the outside. What are the physical characteristics of worship? In other words, what physical actions do we do in that accompany worship? So we're going to look at one verse here and find out that there is a spiritual significance to what we do physically. How many understand that? That God calls us to do things, and when we physically do them, there's a significance to that. 2 Kings 13, 17 says this. Then Elisha proclaimed, this is the Lord's arrow, full of victory over Aram, for you will completely conquer the Arameans at Aphek. Now pick up the other arrows and strike them against the ground. So the king picked them up and struck the ground three times. But the man of God was angry with him. You should have struck the ground four or five or six times, he exclaimed. Then you would have beaten Aram until they were entirely destroyed. Now you'll be victorious only three times. So there was a significance to the action of banging the arrows on the ground. Now, could God have done that without banging the arrows? Yes. Could God have accomplished complete victory with three bangs? Yes. But there was an action, there's a significance to the physical action that the king did. And it matters in our lives how we physically demonstrate our worship. When Israel was about to conquer Jericho, what did God tell them to do? Go out, walk around the walls, be quiet. Last day, go around, shout, blow the trumpets, and what happens? Walls came down. Now, do you think that God could have done that without them marching? Could God have done that without, they could have been staying at home, right? But God called them to do this The physical action God blessed because it is part of what we're supposed to do. A physical action is required at this point to accompany his blessings. Remember Moses' battle and they had to hold his hands up, right? And as long as his hands were up, they won. And when they came down, they were losing. Exodus 17, 11 says, as long as Moses held up the staff with his hands, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites gained the upper hand. And then, you know, Aaron and Hur held up his hands. Obviously, we believe that God could have done it whether or not his hands were up or down. But there is a significance to the physical action that God requires us to do. And when we we follow the mandate that God sets up for for physical actions, spiritual blessings will come along with them. Now, God also has physical actions that we do that accompany our worship. Now, we're Pentecostals. We, we know that. We can, we can experience that. But there are things that we may not experience that God, God's word tells us to experience. And we're going to look at Psalms. How many know that Psalms is like God's hymn book, right? You know, we, we sing a lot of the songs. A lot of those things were incorporated into, into our singing. And we're going to see what God says in his hymn book about how to worship. Now, the first thing that God tells us, and some of these we know, some of them we don't, is be still. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. Now, if you're like me, being still is not easy. <laughs> you feel like you have to be doing something, right? If I'm, if I'm sitting down doing, not doing something, I feel like I'm wasting time. 
I should be doing something. But God, God says, be still. And just relax in the fact and know that I'm God. I like the New Living Translation says, be silent and know that I'm God. How many of you know the old joke? You know, it's better to th- someone to think you're a fool than to open your mouth and prove them right. So sometimes we just have to sit still and not worship and not sing and just be still, either sit or stand quietly before God. And a lot of those times when you're really quiet before God, God is able to speak to you. If you're always doing the talking and God can't get a word in edgewise, you're not gonna receive. So sometimes it's good to be still and know you're God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I prepare a sermon or I'm reading, I can't have anything going on around me. No music, no nothing. I have to be totally quiet. Now, I can do other things with music and stuff on, but when I'm doing this kind of stuff, mental work, you might want to turn that down a little bit. When I'm doing mental work, I I have to have it totally quiet in order to be able to concentrate. And that's how it is with God. You have to sometimes be quiet and just concentrate on what God is doing. I don't know about you, but sometimes when you worship, your minds go 100 miles an hour during worship and you're thinking about everything else and you just try to worship and pray and you're thinking about everything going on. God says, be still. It's time to be still. Quiet our thought life and simply know that God is here. And sometimes we might not even sing. Sometimes even during the song, you'll just stop singing and just be quiet before God. And the Holy Spirit is able to minister you then. The second thing we do, the Bible talks about, is something that we're pretty good at. Clap your hands. Psalm 47.1 says, come everyone and clap your hands for joy. Now, we got that, right? We're pretty good at that. Most of us clap. Some of us don't. Now, the word clap it's kind of vague in the Bible. It's just, it basically, it's just the word clap. It could mean clap along with the beat, and it could mean clap along as a means of applause. So if we clap, now, if it means clap along with the music, that means you have to clap along with the beat. So if you're clapping, try to clap with the beat. We, you have a few of those guys out there that, you know, they're, they're clapping, not clapping with the beat, clap with the beat. If you can't clap with the beat, then that's the time to be still before God. <laughs> Sometimes we want to show God our appreciation like we did at the beginning. We, we, we applaud God for who he is. And if we, pl- if we applaud people for what they do, how much more should we just applaud God and just thank him and, and raise up an applause for him? We, we give an applause for people who do solos. We give applause for people who give testimonies. We should give God applause as well. Number three, bow down or kneel. Now, I came out of a denomination that did a lot of kneeling. And I found that a lot of AG churches, we don't, we don't do the kneeling much anymore. I don't know if it's because we came out of that or whatever, but Psalm 95, six says, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord God, our maker. Just as much as clapping is included in our worship, kneeling and bowing down should also be a part of our worship. Now, the Hebrew word for bow or kneel, I'm going to show you this. I found this out on the video. 
you know, you think it's this. But the actual Hebrew word, if, I, if you can see me, if I can get back up from this spot, is actually this. You're prostrate before God. Now there's prostrate, and then there's the other one. Prostrate is when you're on the ground. Prostate is the other. So when we say the word prostrate, let's get the word prostrate down. You are prostrate before God. And it's simply an indication or humbling yourself before God. When people see the Pope or the king or somebody that's in, you know, important, they bow down, correct? We should bow down before God. Now, sometimes it's hard for us physically to do that, but it should be a part of what we do as a part of worship. Remember Esther? When she went to the, you know, Haman was going to kill the Jews. He was, you know, he was promoted. And then at his request, he was going to demand that the people bow down to him. Remember? Esther 3.2 says all the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. For so the king had commanded. Now remember Mordecai, because he realized that he was not worthy of that type of honor, refused to do it. Verse 2 goes on and says, but Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. God is the God of the universe. God gave everything for us. So we should bow down in respect and honor for who God is. And a lot of times that will come in the slower stuff, in the slower music that we sing, because we begin to really enter in and recognize how much God's done for us, especially with the lyrics of the song. So we should continually, if not bow our physical body, we should bow our hearts and our heads before God. Now number four, we know this one, we do it all the time, is sing. Psalm 96 verse one says, sing a new song to the Lord, let the whole earth sing to the Lord. I'm not, I'm, this isn't original to me, but you notice the Bible never says, sing an old song to the Lord. Why do you think God says, sing a new song? It's not that old songs are bad. Actually, this past Wednesday, we could, I called it an oldies night. If you were here Wednesday night, we sang a lot of the older stuff, older, older hymns, older choruses, and it was a little bit longer than we normally do, and it was a great time of worship. Nothing wrong with the old stuff. So why not keep singing the same old songs when God says, sing a new song? God doesn't get bored with us, right? He doesn't get bored hearing that we love him. He doesn't get bored with hearing how amazing his grace is. Why do we sing new stuff? Well, I've, I've got two thoughts on that. The first one is every generation needs music that they identify with and means something to them. Music that they can call their own. Songs that either through the music itself or the lyrics that really touch a person that is unique to their generation. Now you all know growing up, 60s or 70s, secular music, that was my thing. So guitars, drums, keyboards, all that stuff was a part of my music liking. So Amazing Grace on the organ didn't cut it for me. But then, Hosanna Integrity came out in the early, mid 80s with full band, different lyrics that I had never heard before, but the lyrics honored God and they were new. Now there's some teens here. How many of you teens like 
your parents' music? How many of you parents like your parents' music? Oh, see, I do. Every generation needs music that honors God that may not be their parents' or their grandparents' music. Something that they can call their own. And the second reason is, and this may be more important, is that singing the same old songs all the time can get repetitious and stale to us. You know, every once in a while, I'll find a song that I really like, and I will just play it to death. And I'll play it, as we used to say in the old times, until the record was smooth, we would play that song. And after a while, what happens? You get tired of hearing it. In fact, you get sick of hearing it, and you don't play it anymore. Constantly singing the same old songs will diminish the meaning to you and have a negative impact on worship because, oh, here's that song again. It becomes old hat to you. You It doesn't mean what it used to mean to you. It doesn't have the same draw that it does, and you get bored of singing it. So it doesn't have the impact on your spirit that it did when you first heard it. You may sing them. You may know all the lyrics to it, but your heart's not in it. You're singing the lyrics because you know it and you've heard it a million times. And we talked about that last week, going through all the motions but not having the heart behind it to validate why you're doing the the emotions. Number five, raising hands. I saw a lot of you raise your hands today. That's good. Psalm 134 verse 2 says, lift your hands in holiness and bless the Lord. Obviously, the symbol of raising your hands is surrender, right? When you get, when your cops come to your door, put your hands up. You surrender. You give yourself to God. You're surrendering yourself to who God is. Now, we have that one down pretty good. Now, here's one that's going to make you nervous. Dancing. Psalm 149 verse 3 says, praise his name with dancing. Psalm 150, verse 4, praise him with the tambourine and dancing. Now, I was told earlier, dancing was sinful, right? How many heard that growing up, dancing was sinful? Now, we don't buy that now. You have to watch what type of dancing you do. So what we did is we, we kicked that part out of God's word. We don't, we don't dance. But the Bible plainly says that we can praise God with dancing. Remember when the ark was being brought back to Jerusalem? It was out in these various towns, and every town it was in, people died or got sick or whatever, and then finally came back to Jerusalem, and as it was coming back, what happened? David was dancing in front of the ark. 2 Samuel 6, 14 says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly tunic. So it's okay to kick up your heels as you worship God. Now the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14 that everything we do is decent and in order. It doesn't exclude these things, but it also shouldn't be something that distracts everybody else. You understand the difference? It's okay to dance, and sometimes the dance can be a choreographed dance, like we've had that dance ensemble here a couple of times, and they've done something to music up here that we participate, we watched, and it also could, could mean your own dancing before God. And again, we do that for ourselves, not for everybody else to see. 
Number seven, what instruments do we use? Well, we'd like to use all of them, right? But that sheet in front of you that you have, we did that before. Notice there was instrumental on that list. If you have the gift of music and you can play, I'm here to tell you, thus saith the Lord, you need to be on the worship team. What instruments do we use? Well, Psalm 150 verse three says, praise him with the blast of the trumpet. Anybody play trumpet? Praise him with the lyre and the harp. I'm not sure if a harp is too much. Anybody play a harp? Praise him with the tambourine and dancing, we got that. Praise him with the stringed instruments and flutes. We got some of those stringed instruments. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. We have them, but we don't use them. Praise him with loud clanging cymbals. Loud clanging cymbals. I see that. You're, by, you're on deck. Now, this list is not meant to be the only instruments we can use. How many know that? It's, it's symbolic of the three types of instruments. You have your wind instruments, you have your brass, you have your percussion, you have your string. So, bass, guitar, drums, vocals, all those are represented here. Notice, and when I first got saved, we were strictly piano and organ. Notice it doesn't say piano and organ on the list. Now, it can include those, but it's not the only thing that we're allowed to use. Just about every instrument available can be used to worship God if they're in harmony and they can play together. When we are engaged in worship and we are engaged in physical aspect of worship, we, never, we need to remember that worship is to whom we are worshiping. It's not to ourselves. Who is the worship intended? Are we doing it for us? Are we doing it for our neighbor? Are we worshiping for God? One of the reasons we close our eyes during worship is not, you know, there's two reasons. One, to focus on worshiping, and second, not to be distracted by what's going on around you. If people around you are doing things that distract you, close your eyes. Because your worship is not for them, it's worship for God. And we should be careful not to judge others others in how they worship. Some of us may be more demonstrative than others. But we should incorporate these aspects. Not every service does all these things, but when we say that they can't be used ever, the Bible doesn't back that up either. So all these things should be present and available to us when we worship. Worship is intended for God and our eyes and attention need to be pointed in that direction. Shouldn't be watching our neighbor. We shouldn't be judging or criticizing their forms of worship. We should be focusing on just worshiping ourselves. Now, the kids are gonna be up here on March 8th, BGMC. And what do you think the first thing the kids are gonna do when they get up here? They're gonna look out to you, find who they know, and do this. (laughs) And some of them may even run off the platform to go to you, right? And they may say, hi, mom, hi, dad, hey, me, mom, you know, they'll yell that from the platform. And do you think that they care about what anybody thinks? (laughs) Obviously not, because they're doing things that draw attention to them, 
and they're just waving and they're, they're doing what they want. Why? Because they noticed their parents or their grandparents or whoever their family is, they notice them in the crowd and their attention is only for them. So if they're waving at you or saying your name, they don't care what anybody else is doing because it, it wasn't for them. It's for you. So when we worship, our worship should be focused only on God. And we shouldn't worry about what other people think about our worship. So that means we may have to, we may want to do things that are different than what we've done before. As long as they are biblical, as we've discussed, all those types of things should be and can be incorporated into worship. And when we physically do them, that God tells us to do them in worship, there is a spiritual significance to that. When you enter into worship and you physically do what God tells us to do in his word, the Holy Spirit comes in and does a great work in you and a great work in the service. So when we are able to freely do that, we allow the Holy Spirit to come in. And as we saw in the examples at the beginning, God did things in response to physical actions on the part of the people. So when we worship and we either clap or raise our hands or whatever it is we do, directed by the Spirit, don't forget, it's also in spirit and in truth. When we do that stuff, we can see and we will experience God responding to that. Just like with the wall of Jericho and Moses' arms, when we physically do something in our act of worship because the Spirit leads us to do that, God responds to that. So we should be open to that. And as long as our worship is honest and biblical and honors God, we need the, the freedom to worship how we are directed by the Spirit. Now, our lesson last week, remember it was in spirit and in truth. Both are necessary for true worship. It's easy in a Pentecostal church especially to go way out and be a distraction and do things that maybe aren't true, but you feel that in your spirit. If we worship only in spirit, it becomes only emotional and no basis in God's word. And it can be disruptive. If we worship only in truth without the emotion to back it up, it becomes ritual, dry, and without sincerity. We can do all the motions, but have no heart in it. But worshiping in spirit and in truth allows us to outwardly express what God is already doing in our hearts. So when we enter into worship, I wrote down here, feel free to allow your emotions guided by the truth to be exhibited outwardly in our worship. Now I'm gonna have the worship team come back, or the singers actually, and gonna do the track again, but we're gonna do a song that is an oldie, oldie but goodie, and I'm gonna read something to you about the author of the song. You may know it, you've probably heard it before. Let me see if I can find it. The name of the song is It's Well With My Soul. You all know that song, right? You know who the author was? Horatio Spafford was the author. Let me read his testimony. In 1871, Spafford's four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. Two years later, business demands kept Spafford from joining his wife and four daughters on a family vacation in England where his friend Moody would be preaching. On November of 1873, while crossing the Atlantic on this steamship, Villa de Haver, the ship was struck by an iron sailing vessel, killing 226 people. 
His wife, Anna, survived the tragedy. Upon arriving in England, she sent a telegram to Spafford that read, saved alone. He had four daughters that were with him, and they did not survive the trip. The original manuscript has four verses, but Spafford's daughter, who was born after the tragedy, sent an additional verse, was later added, and the last line of the original song was modified. The words of the song indicate how God ministered to him after the tragedy. The song we sang this morning, I can worship in joy or sing with joy when my heart is heavy. Worship is not only a powerful thing, we honor God, we worship God, but during the act of worship, God is able to come in to you and heal the broken heart. Do you think that he felt this way the instant he heard the news? I'm gonna say no. But he allowed the Holy Spirit to come in and take that burden from him and change his heart. You know, some of us go through tremendous tragedy in our life. And sometimes the natural reaction to ask is, where is God during that? But Spafford in in the hymn didn't do that. So I'm gonna ask them to come up if they would sing. We're gonna sing this song. It's a track again. Doesn't have all the verses on it, but I want us to sing this song. And think about those you know who have experienced hardship. And, and pray that God is able to do something in their lives, but also pray that God is able to do something in our life as we worship. Focus upon the goodness of God and worship God for who he is. And then as the song says, when peace comes down like a river, and God can do that. Would you stand with us? to the cross and 
If you look at the lyrics of the song, even though he experienced great tragedy, his first thoughts were that he was saved, that his sins were forgiven, and that he'd be promised the eternity with Christ. And he knew that because of that, he would see his, his family again. All the worship and all of the preaching of God's word all lead to one point. The main point, the entire theme of the Bible is reconciling yourself to God. We worship God because of what he's already done. We preach to encourage us to trust God for what he's already done. And we offer the plan of salvation to those who have not experienced that yet. Maybe you're here this morning, you've, you've been in our church for a long time, or maybe you've only been here a couple of times. The question is still the same. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you asked Christ to come in and forgive you of the sins in your life? The Bible says the wages of our sin is death. Our, our sins keep us out of heaven. Our good works don't get us into heaven. It's our sins that keep us out. And the only way to have those sins forgiven is to trust what Christ did on the cross in payment for your sins. And once you trust that he's already paid your debt, the Bible says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. When you accept Christ's death as payment for sins that you should have suffered, that I should have suffered, when you accept that in your heart, the Bible says you can be assured of your place in heaven. And the question is this, have you made that choice? Have you made that decision to trust Christ? Only you can make that choice. Your parents can't make it for you. Your grandparents can't make it for you. Your wife or your husband can't make it for you. You have to make it yourself. 
And the Bible says that God stands at the doorway of your heart and he knocks. But he's not going to knock the door down. He's waiting for you to open it. If you want Jesus to come in, the Bible says open the door, he'll come in and he'll sup with you. He will fellowship with you, but you have to invite him in. If that's what you want to do today, if the Spirit of God is drawing you, as the Bible says, no one comes to God unless God's Spirit draws him. If you want to make that choice, I want you to raise your hand right now. We are here to agree with you in prayer. Hallelujah. Father, I'm going to assume that everyone here trusts in you. And Father, I thank you for the sacrifice you made for us. And that sacrifice has allowed us to be promised that when our life is over, we will be in paradise with you. All the worship and all the things that we do here, the, the great things, the blessings we experience, the hardships we endure, all of those things are but temporary compared to eternity with you. So Father, all we can do is thank you for that. We can't do anything to earn it. We can't, we can't earn our way into heaven. But we can live our lives to honor you as a way of recognizing what you've done for us. So Father, I pray that you would continue to fill us daily with your Holy Spirit. Continue, Lord, to direct our lives in every way possible. That we would serve you out of gratitude, not out of compulsion. We love you this morning, Lord. We are so thankful for all you've done for us. If you would have only died for us and not done anything else, that would be enough. But we're thankful that you're active in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless each person here, answer every prayer that we prayed today and that we prayed during the week. Let the reality of Christ be evidenced in our lives. Now, Father, bless us as we leave today. Go before us, Father. Prepare the way for us. Direct our paths and allow us to come in contact with people who need Jesus. And then give us the opportunity, the words, and the boldness to talk. And Father, we will thank you for all that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 Have a blessed week. Let me know what God's doing in your life. Let me hear answered prayer. It's encouraging to the body of Christ.